Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in John chapter 16, uh, which means um, by the end of this week, um, we'll be nearly done with the book. I believe uh, Friday we'll be on chapter 20. Uh, there's only 22 chapters of John's gospel. So by the end of this week, uh, we'll reach the, the real climax of the story, which is, of course, the crucifixion bleeding into the, the resurrection. And you remember what, what we've said, that um, John basically has three uh, climaxes, of course, building towards the climax. John 6 and John 11 are two, the feed the 5,000 bread of life, the raising of Lazarus, uh, uh, resurrection of life. And then we get the ultimate um, the ultimate climax, that is the resurrection of Jesus himself. So what you have in chapters 12 to, to the end is a building up to, of, of that moment, both in narrative and in teaching. So when it comes to long teaching sections, let's say the red letter portion of your Bible, uh, this section is particularly long. If we go back to chapter 13 with the Upper Room Discourse, and it bleeds into the uh, Gethsemane scene. In fact, there's, there's little narrative note that we've transitioned from one place to, to another, but it's there. So we know that, that now, by chapter 16, Jesus is in um, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, um, and he is teaching them. And remember what we said about chapters 14 and 15. Uh, John uh, doesn't deal with the Last Supper. He, he puts that in the uh, uh, Bread of Life section, the Feeding 5,000. And he doesn't really have a prayer scene in the garden. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're going to emphasize Jesus' sorrow in the garden. Uh, John doesn't do that. We don't really see Jesus suffering under the weight he, he is about to, to carry, um, um, which is why whenever heresy suggests that propitiation was actually uh, performed at Gethsemane, uh, this may be a... Uh, to have a witness view, I'd, I'd have to do some more research. But there is some movement that have argued uh, that Jesus' work of atonement actually took place in the garden, not at the cross. The problem is that we have an entire gospel that has no such scene in it uh, because the emphasis is the cross. Of course, how you can miss that in the New Testament is pretty dumbfounding to me. So what Jesus is going to do in chapter 16 is he's, he's, he's preparing his disciples that um, you will suffer well but how you live your life is 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 going to be shaped by what you believe about me. Now, this is important because Jesus says that to be a Christian is to suffer. Thus, it is an American lie, a uniquely American lie that has affected other places of the world, that to be a Christian is to be free from suffering. You're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. In fact, you're going to find the opposite, as this chapter demonstrates. So Jesus says, look, I'm leaving. Now, the Spirit's going to come. We'll, we'll look at him uh, here in a second. But, uh, but they're going to come for you. Don't think that uh, having come for me, they're not going to come for you. And so uh, it, is, it is really rank heresy to suggest that now that I've embraced Jesus, he owes me something. No, what Jesus has given you is his very blood. Jesus doesn't owe you anything. What we owe him, is, as we've seen in, in these Upper Room Discourse and in Gethsemane, uh, is uh, righteousness, holiness, and following after him. Well, I want to skip down uh, just really for the sake of time, and I'm hoping to, to be brief. Uh, verse 7, uh, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Remember what this term means. We looked at it last week. The word the ESV translates helper. Your Bible may say comforter or advocate or counselor or something like that. 
is the Greek word parakletos, means uh, one that comes alongside, like a paramedic or a parallel, um, and, and you can think of dozens others. Um, what we have here is Jesus is describing the Holy Spirit as one that as he ascends, we get in Acts 1, the Spirit descends. In fact, John has uh, the Spirit um, coming upon the disciples uh, near the end of, of, of the book. Uh, that he will be a source of comfort and help, and he will also um, um, bring to mind the teachings of Jesus, which means that in this context of suffering, what is Jesus saying? When you suffer, don't forget my teaching. Don't forget the gospel. Now, the way the Spirit directs us to Christ is primarily now through the writings of Scripture. We have the teachings of Jesus in the context of the Gospels and the apostolic writings after that. And so the Spirit directs us to the Spirit-inspired work called the Bible. And it is imperative that we are saturated with the Word of God before, during, and after suffering. And while all of us are in a moment of prior to suffering, amid suffering, or after suffering. So Jesus says it's important that, that I leave so that the Spirit comes and will direct you through all things. You will suffer, but you never suffer alone if you are in Christ and you are leaning into the work of the Spirit. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now remember, uh, don't misread this apart from what John has said. Uh, remember, Jesus said in John chapter 3 that he comes as light. Remember, that's a big theme in this, in this book, of course. But what happens? To some, it illuminates their way out of darkness. To others, it exposes their deeds as evil, and they don't want the light. So while the Spirit comes to condemn, uh, to, to, to uh, convict, and to point people of their sin and towards righteousness, there are those who, having been convicted of sin, will dig deeper into sin, and those who will uh, come come out of sin. Um, verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is a uh, Johannine theme, particularly in this, this, this these chapters, but it has shown up elsewhere that the ruler of this age, Satan, if you will, has come under judgment. And we've talked about this in, in some detail. Go back to our study of 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember 1 Peter 2, we talked about the three legs of the atonement. Uh, the main leg is that of penal substitution, that Jesus dies in our place for our sins as the Lamb of God. And then what we talked about then was uh, the Christus exemplar uh, leg. That is, Christ dies, um, giving us an example for us to follow, meaning that the cross is the center of the Christian ethic. What does love look like? Look to the cross. How should we live our life? Look to the cross. How, how do we suffer? Look to the cross. Everything is look to the cross. While Paul, or, yeah, Paul will say, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. And we saw in our study of 1 Corinthians, every step of the way, every time he dealt with division and conflict, he pointed people back to the cross. Uh, there is a third leg that we've not spent a lot of time on, although we did in our study of Colossians, and that is called Christus Victor. Christus victor means Christ the victor, um, and often people attach it to spiritual warfare, and rightly so. Christ uh, rules and reigns even over 
um, dark forces. Now that is true, and that's that's the idea here that Christ has come uh, to to condemn uh, the the supernatural ruler of this age, Satan uh, himself. But he also uh, means by Christ's victory is that victory over sin, um, uh, victory over everything. Uh, is is found in Christ. Now, what the prosperity heretics do is they say your victory over poverty and victory over sin. No, that's, that's you're not going to get that in the Bible. Uh, in fact, those things are of little significance compared to victory over sin, victory over Satan, and victory over death. Those would be the three categories to actually look under Christus Victor. But nevertheless, he goes on um, to to verse 19 again for the sake of time. Uh, is this what you are asking yourself, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me again, you will, in a little while you'll see me. So Jesus speaks in these cryptic terms. He does it throughout the four Gospels. Jesus says, in a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while you will see me. And the disciples are thinking, what in the world is God talking about? How can we in a little while not see him and still see him? Well, we know with hindsight, because of the Holy Spirit, remember what he said uh, starting in verse 7, um, we know what Jesus means, that he is going to die, thus he's not going to be with them. But he will return, he will be raised, thus he will be with them. Right? Well, disciples don't, don't know this yet. And so Jesus says, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Just pause there and think about what Jesus says and how it applies to, to our lives. That for the Christian, the things we weep over should be the things the world rejoices over. The problem comes whenever we weep over the things that the world weeps. If you're weeping over an election, if you're rejoicing over an election, that's what the world does. Why do we do this? Our hope is not in the things of this world, but in the things of God. So when Christ suffers upon the cross, the world will rejoice, but you will mourn. So too, as the gospel goes forth, you will rejoice, but the world will mourn. What our great desire is not the same as that of the world for far too long. Christians have tried to convince themselves that if we're friendly enough and if we have good enough PR, the world will like us and, and, and waltz into our churches. And that is not how it works. That is not how it works. Notice the illustration he gives starting in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but you will see me again. Um, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Now, I love this illustration for one because I've, I've, I've been through that from a husband's perspective, of course. Um, and I remember with our firstborn, um, it was uh, an eight-hour labor, and we had some complications, and then here comes the baby, and she's holding the baby. I remember asking her, look, would you do this again? Would, would, I mean, and, and, and of course, when you're in labor, you're thinking, this is, <laughs> why do people do this? But the second you see that baby and snuggle with them, yeah, you would go through this again. I remember with our second child, she was having issues with, with her side. I remember saying, we'll try this, let's do this. Doctor, and she says, no, if she is comfortable, I can get through this. 
Thank you. That, that, that is someone who has learned that the temporary anguish of the moment is worth the triumphal joy when it comes. So to Jesus says, look, in Christ you have joy. You have joy. And no one and nothing can take that from you. Not even the world. Notice again he says, no one will take your joy from you. Why? Because Christ is risen from the dead. So when we are fickle in our emotions, fickle in our joy, fickle in our laughter, fickle in our fellowship, fickle in any of this, it is because we have taken our eyes off the cross. In fact, notice how he concludes, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. There it is. See how joy and peace are related. He's, he's, he's developed a theology of love. Now he's developed a theology of joy and peace. Peace is going to come back at the resurrection. We'll see it in chapter 22. And notice that if no one can rob you of your joy, no one will rob you of your peace. And notice, in the world you will have tribulation. Peace and joy are not based off of circumstances. They are anchored in Christ. But take heart. You've overcome the world. You have nothing to fear. So act like it, Christian. Hope to see you guys here tomorrow.